This is Fine, episode 1.13, Mo Prisons, Mo Problems. Uh, hi, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jerry. Uh, and today we're going to talk about mass incarceration. I think that one sort of stat, actually, that we just talked about pre-show should maybe frame some of our discussion, which is the fact that seven in a thousand Americans are in prison right now as we speak, which is the highest rate in the entire world, excepting possibly some uh, small uh, parts of, of the former Soviet Union. Uh, yeah, uh, so America America accounts for about 5% of the world's population uh, and houses 25% of its uh, of its inmates. Uh, we incarcerate Americans at a higher rate than any other nation incarcerates anybody on Earth. Uh, we incarcerate Black Americans at an even higher rate than that. And uh, some states, like Louisiana in particular, uh, are like literally the most in incarcerated places on earth so um we thought that this was uh this was something that was maybe worth talking about right right it, the rate for african-american men uh in new orleans is uh one in 14 is currently incarcerated and double that uh if you actually count uh, parole or probation so it's one in seven uh for for counting both prison parole and probation it seems like it's a crisis and unlike many of the other items that we've talked about it seems like one that um, may actually get worse. And I'll, I'll contrast this with, with healthcare policy a little bit, uh, which we talked about la- last time. You know, in healthcare, it looks like the ACA may survive. It looks like there's a growing mobilization for, for single payer. Um, with incarceration, it feels like um, there had been a lot of bipartisan policy consensus as, as crime came down uh, through the 90s and, and 2000s. Um, in terms of possibly looking at revising uh, sentencing and and maybe tackling mass incarceration. Um, and now that issue, uh, especially under the Trump and, and Sessions as AG, um, that issue feels politicized, actually, in a way like it hasn't been in, in decades. And, and uh, you know, I can only sort of sort of imagine negative impacts for that. Right. So uh, as we mentioned at the closing of our last episode, Jeff Sessions came out and said, um, first, I'm going to instruct all federal prosecutors to seek the maximum sentence that they think they can convict with. Uh, We're going to reopen the War on Drugs. So War on Drugs 2, the sequel coming your way shortly. And it just it really feels like a moment where a lot of the progress that had been even notional progress uh, that had been made just in terms of the national conversation and talking about mass incarceration as like this real uh, damaging, uh, you know, and, you know, quite frankly, morally obscene uh, phenomenon of American political life, a lot of that progress is now at risk or is being pushed back. Right. It was easy to imagine under a sort of Koch brother funded uh, conventional sort of uh, white collar criminal type Republican president, um, a a real change in, in policy. And, and instead, right, we elected as president someone who was calling uh, for the execution of uh, completely innocent uh, people. The, the, in, in New York, there was this incident in the 80s uh, where a group of young men were falsely accused, African-American and Latino men were falsely accused of uh, raping a jogger. Um, and Trump famously in the 80s had called for uh, basically their lynching. And then, you know, even as it turned out that their confessions had been coerced and that their 
they were innocent. Um, he he basically uh, during the campaign doubled down uh, because there's nothing like um, you know uh, calling for the extreme punishment of innocent uh, non-whites that that really uh, sort of is the fundamental truth behind Trump. Um, so yeah, so th- these this is the sort of political situation we're in, um, and as Jerry notes, it is a sort of moral obscenity, um, and it's it's not it's not getting any better. I mean, possibly the stats on incarceration were dropping a little bit in some states. Um, but right, but but um, certainly, it, it, uh, given where federal policy is, this isn't going to change. And the book, I think, that has sort of, um, I guess, been a catalyst for partly this discussion. Though there are two books, I think, that we're going to be focusing on today, including and some other material. But uh, book number one is uh, kind of uh, an old classic, I guess, uh, merely five years old in, in this genre. Uh, but it's probably the book that. M- in, in a lot of ways, kicked off uh, the modern conversation on mass incarceration, and that's Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Uh, the basic thesis of, of that book is that the phenomenon of mass incarceration that we're seeing today is a consequence of a lot of uh, the policies that were developed during the war on drugs. And I think that um, I think this is a book that maybe has been slightly mischaracterized in the popular press in the sense that People thought it was really about how, you know, this some some large fraction of Americans are locked up because of the war on drugs, and it's true. But it's also about the tools that were developed during the war during this war on drugs, uh, about what kinds of um, what what kinds of things the police can make use of, what kinds of things the prosecution can make use of, and how those elements all interact to produce this, you know, quite literally a police state for large numbers of Americans, particularly Black and Latino Americans. One of the critiques of Alexander's book has been, since it came out, has been, oh, you know, only 20% of uh, Americans in prison are nonviolent drug criminals. Even if you released 100% of nonviolent drug criminals, we would still incarcerate people at a rate greater than anywhere else in the world. But I think exactly what you're noting is right. It's not just the incarceration of uh, drug criminals in the war on drugs. It's the creation of um, what she calls this sort of undercast, right, of African-American men who have been processed through the criminal justice system with all of the sort of uh, attendant con- consequences on their employment, on their exercise of civil rights, on um, the way that that uh, colors their relationships um, with, uh, you know, with with sort of the um, the regular world that that uh, we interact with it constantly. Right. They've, they've been processed, basically. Right. And the second book, um, which I think is less of a really a scholarly tome and more of, of a kind of um, I don't know what to call it, maybe um, a meditation on the times, if you will, uh, is Chris Hayes' book, Colony in a Nation. Uh, so the title of that book comes from a 19 speech from the what? Is it the 1968 campaign that Nixon gives? Yes. So sorry, it's actually his his acceptance of the presidential nomination uh, at the RNC uh, in 1968. And what's amazing about it is it is part of his call to African-Americans. He says, Black Americans, no more than white Americans, do not want more government programs which perpetuate dependency. They don't want to be a colony in a nation. Um, And it's interesting because it links this um, sort of, uh, you know, classic right wing move through the 60s and 70s of of trying to uh, 
destroy the welfare state. I mean, the government programs which perpetuate dependency that he was critiquing had really just started uh, getting going under Johnson, not not four or five years earlier. And in response, what you know, what's funny about it is uh, he, at the rest of the speech in his administration, um, puts in process the start of this escalation of these law and order tactics um, that that right both Alexander and, and Hayes talk about, which ha- which have as the the impact of, of enforcing this this colonization basically of um, you know African Americans and Latinos and and treating them uh, with a completely different legal order and framework than uh, white Americans face. Right. So that's the metaphor that you know Hayes is drawing on in this book and throughout the book he uh, continue he continues making this distinction distinction about between what it means to live in the nation, which is sort of the respectable, quote-unquote, uh, primarily white, uh, relatively upper-middle-class or thereabouts um, part of America, and what it means to live in the colony, which is poor, typically black or Latino, and uh, is subject to a substantially more draconian police regime than any, you know, th- than the nation is. And I, I do think one of the um, successful metaphors that he uses is basically looking at um, whites in college. And I think he funnily at one point refers to it as a rumspringa, which is what the Amish let their kids do, um, in that there's a completely different law enforcement system, not just for white people, but especially for young whites in college in terms of the types of law breaking that they are absolutely permitted to get up to with oftentimes a completely different parallel policing system. Um, although sometimes it's just a regular old policing system, but you know, all sorts of things that would get you really permanent wreck. I mean, sent away to jail for, for dozens of years, um, uh, you know, selling drugs, uh, distributing drugs, uh, public drug use, uh, sexual assault, etc., are handled um, completely within these campuses um, in a in a complete in a in a different way, obviously, than you can imagine that they're handled uh, every day in the the streets of uh, you know various urban centers in America. One of the stories that Hayes tells here is about I think being at Wisconsin for um, a like a football game or something like that. And if you've ever been to a college football game. Uh, especially in like a competitive conference like the Big Ten or, you know, I, I was a Berkeley undergraduate, so I've seen my share of uh, co- uh, college football hooliganism. Uh, it's, you know, it really is like you, you have to imagine that if most of these people were black, the reaction of the authorities would be entirely different, right? It would be considered, and, and the way that the popular media talks about it is completely, oh, it when it, is completely different, right? When it when it is a bunch of white college students who are getting drunk and throwing up on lawns and maybe causing property damage, it's like, oh, those crazy college kids, look what they're getting up to. And when it's, uh, you know, people protesting, you know, the terrible treatment that they receive at the hands of the police in places uh, like Ferguson, it's, oh, like, look at the, all these unruly black people, like, how dare they, uh, sh- you know, show their faces outside. Yeah, and and I think that that's sort of um, for that even applies to adults. You don't even have to be at a, a college sporting event, right? I mean, you look at um, the sort of media treatment of uh, white sports fans after, say, the Red Sox won their first title or the Cubs won their first title, and the you know 
uh, white sports fans apparently can't riot even if they uh, break shop windows and things. Versus, right, the the stories from from that book and that we've seen over the past couple of years as the Black Lives Matter movement um, has taken more force of, of people uh, engaging in nonviolent protest and um, simply being, uh, you know, having their constitutional rights abrogated at every turn um, by a really militarized police state that seems much more interested in, um, you know, restoring a certain type of power hierarchy than, uh, you know, adjudicating protest or, or, or dealing with it as a community matter. There's a really interesting documentary, uh, which I saw probably, I want to say maybe six months ago, um, still, you know, current, I don't know if it's running in theaters, but you can probably find it online or on Netflix or whatever. But uh, it's called Do Not Resist. And it's a documentary that was made by this guy who himself was, he was not a policeman, but uh, he was the son of policemen. There's no um, commentary in it. It's just him filming a bunch of protests and uh, cops talking and seminars and all this kind of stuff. And it's just this really illuminating look at the way that the police culture is structured to uh, is structured in opposition to quote unquote civilian culture, which already like that distinction already should set off a lot of alarm bells because the civilian uniform distinction is usually something that's made in, you know, with respect to the military. And here we are talking about our police forces as a kind of military force. Um, and I think that, that there's a, there's a particular instance um, in that movie of uh, he's, He's at this seminar, which is uh, being led by this guy named David Grossman, who's a very popular speaker uh, to police departments and all kinds of things. And there, it's just like it's maybe five minutes, maybe even less. Um, but you have to really like watch it. Just watch that one scene and listen to Grossman and listen to the language that he uses and how he talks about what police are supposed to be doing and what their mission is and how their interactions with the the surrounding uh, society are supposed to be structured. It's absolutely bone chilling. Yeah. And I think some of the most powerful critiques uh, of this um, civilian uniform distinction have actually come from people from the military um, who sometimes have returned and, and joined the police force. Um, in many police forces, you you get to count your military service for uh, part of your pension, so it's a popular uh, place to go after after finishing your military service. And you know, these accounts are basically of soldiers being horrified, saying, you know, our rules of engagement were much stricter in Iraq than they are, uh, you know, in dealing with our population of American citizens uh, in U.S. cities. Um, and I think notably, there's a case of a a police officer who was just fired basically for not shooting to death someone who uh, was pointing a gun. Uh, it turns out that he had determined accurately that the gun was unloaded, but then his uh, fellow police officers came and shot the man to death. Uh, and then, you know, now the cop who didn't fire was fired. And I, I mean, I think that's really <laughs> sort of um, exemplifies a, these cops are being taught, I think, to live in terror. And 
I think fear drives a lot of the immediate uniform uh, civilian distinction that that you're describing. Like I like I think that there's this other prosecutorial problem about control that both Alexander and Hayes talk about a lot. But I think that a main problem in in police interactions is just they're poorly trained, they're over equipped, um, and and they they live in a terror that I don't think is statistically justified. You know, only only fifty police officers a year basically are killed uh, as a result of crime. Maybe like a, a place to focus that is actually not the focus of each of these books that would be very interesting is, is if we could provide better training, not just more buying surplus military equipment, but actually better training. One thing that I think each of the books uh, that we're talking about today actually focuses a, uh, not enough on is maybe shifts that could be made within police departments to improve their training and their relationships with their local communities. Um, obviously, there is that prosecutorial overreach, but um, right now, most of the funding, especially from the feds that goes towards local police departments, is just to buy them new toys, you know, these completely unnecessary uh, large military vehicles. Um, and you can imagine a um, smart Democrat who wanted some law and order points increasing funding for the police and paying them more, but focusing that on instead training and softer skills and a lot of the things that I think would de-escalate some of these relationships with the communities that they're in. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. I think that both of these books set for themselves, you know, they set a different goal. They're trying to outline kind of how we got to this point where we're even talking about, you know, a problem with rampant police killings, right? So, or mass incarceration. And I think, you know, Hayes's book is a little bit more... Uh, it's a little bit more surface on the surface, I guess. It doesn't, it doesn't, like I said, claim to be a scholarly work. Uh, although you know, it contains plenty of citations and stuff. Alexander is more uh, focused on outlining how specifically the various innovations, both kind of le- mostly legal innovations that were instituted during um, you know the war on drugs, how those innovations came to be used in a, you know, as a method of racial control. I mean, that is sort of her explicit thesis. Um, and I think she does a very good job of that. I think there's a, like a really interesting uh, chapter that she has on, for example, Supreme Court decisions and what each of those Supreme Court decisions that control how police have to interact with people that they stop or when they are allowed to stop them, how those decisions have kind of ratcheted up the um, uh, the, the situation to the point where uh for even, you know, even you can talk about um, better training or whatever, but better training already kind of presumes that a police encounter has taken place. When you're at the point where a police interaction has already taken place, it's obviously good if that or better if that interaction is normal and nonviolent. But the problem is that the rate, for example, of police interactions of any sort uh, tends to be, for example, biased in, you know, both by racial and class dynamics. And if we're at the point where we're kind of talking about police training, it's good to talk about police training, but I think that it's more important to, if you can bring that rate down, then the police training can help at the margins. But I think it can, um, but, I, but I think that the real solution here is, to talk about uh, getting to the point where 
the police are not routinely interacting with citizens as if they're being suspected of crimes. Well, I, I think that that's an important modifier because I think that there is a uh, false choice presented in the Hayes book, which to be fair, as you note, Alexander's book is more scholarly and doesn't engage in, but that you know there's a choice between having an ordered society um, and treating a people as if they are colonial subjects. Um, and you know, if we abandon uh, this these prosecutorial and police tactics, um, we necessarily will fall into disorder. Um, Alexander doesn't make that argument that to to note that, but I but I think it comes down to this interaction as if you were treated as a suspect of a crime. Um, you know, and, and to be fair, ab absolutely, um, Alexander talks about a number of ways in which the drug war, in particular, um, heightens these interactions, but I. I do think there's something to the idea of if you have a police presence, but you don't feel that that police presence is going to arrest you, um, then that that's not necessarily a bad thing. So I'm not necessarily, a, I, you know, I, I actually would be for more police interaction, provided that it was in the context of a cop who, who uh, at most could write you a citation. Um, because, you know... I, I don't want people like, you know, I don't know, like uh, openly drinking on the street or throwing bottles or breaking windows or other things. I just think that to take that and turn that into uh, Giuliani is uh, and, a, and a means of social control uh, where you process people through the criminal justice system um, is not a path that we have to take. I, I just think I, I don't think those two have to be linked. There's a really interesting paradox that has uh, accompanied this rise in incarceration, and that is uh, the murder clearance rate. Um, right. It has completely just plummeted in a number of large jurisdictions. Boston, for example, is uh, one where the murder clearance rate dropped by something like 30 or 40 percent. And you say, oh, okay, well, we have all these people in the justice system. We have these people in prison. Why are we finding fewer murders, right? Like what happened between now and 30 or 40 years ago that has caused us to find fewer murders. And that's that's also while homicides have dropped. So there are more homicide detectives per homicides at the same time. That's right. That's right. So it's a very strange situation that, uh, you know, if you were just looking at it, you I think you would be at a real loss to explain, like, what exactly is going on here. But I think that this that the social control thesis that both uh, Hayes and Alexander and others uh, have presented, I think, really kind of accounts for that. What it says is that the goal of the police is not necessarily to solve crimes. The goal of the police, what the police are there to do, is to provide a measure of order, where what order really means is that the people that are being policed know their place. Like, that is what is really happening. It's What's happening is not that the police are working harder solving crimes in black neighborhoods because they're because they're not. They're working harder stopping black people for, uh, you know, having broken taillights or something. Right. And and so there are two pieces. One, um, Jill Iovi's book, Ghetto Side, uh, touches what she calls this under policing quite a bit. And there's a tension here because, um, you know, African-American communities are, are still the centers of some of the most violent crime. And so it's the source of actually 
a lot of the both initial sort of drug war changes and and also sort of calls for more policing did come from uh, or or included uh, leaders in African American communities. But as you completely note, the problem is that the resources that came were not focused on um, actual community policing or or crime solving. The resources that came were were focused on on control. And I, I just I think that there is, however, a sort of Again, a, a way you can, you know, we look at these northern European countries that we admire so much that have very low incarceration rates. Um, they are still very highly ordered. And, you know, the claim, the easy claim could be made. Yeah, but those are homogenous societies. They're not as heterogeneous as our society. But I think that means that we just need police forces that reflect the communities um, that are operating. I mean, if you have cops who've grown up in a neighborhood and who are, you know, there to uh, reduce disorder without locking everyone up. Like, this is sort of the problem with stop and frisk, right? Like, you frisk hundreds of thousands of people and process thousands into the criminal justice system um, and made everyone distrust you. Uh, and so you not only ruined all these lives, you reduced your murder clearance rate. But, you know, that's that's like the worst type of that interaction. That doesn't mean that in high crime areas, having a lot of police around is a bad thing. It just it's what you direct your your police officers to do. Yeah, there's definitely a uh, a misdirection of resources. Um, and but but I think that a large problem with this. Well, there there are two problems, I think, with. I guess what I would call this directionality thesis, uh, one of them is that. Um, of all the people in the criminal justice system, uh, the police uh, probably have the most discretion of anybody. So a single trooper on the ground has uh, a lot of discretion in what they're going to do and um, what they would what, what they can stop somebody for, uh, what goals they want to pursue. So, you can say from the top that, yes, uh, you know, we should direct our resources to solving actual crimes instead of, uh, you know, rounding up people for, um, I don't know, having like outstanding court costs or something. But at the same time, the question is, does that get translated down to the people who are actually carrying out the orders? And the answer seems to be not really. Um it's again. It's better if you can if you can get the uh, leadership to commit to a smarter strategy. But it's also very difficult because there is just a huge amount of latitude that police officers have in deciding how they're going to handle any particular interaction. Um, and that latitude sure. and that latitude comes from you know again a series of laws, a series of uh, Supreme Court decisions, and uh, that combination I think has been extremely toxic right there's no like if a police officer violates your constitutional rights it is really really difficult to get redress oh if a police uh, officer shoots you it's really difficult yeah right i mean redress. at any at any level right yeah. any violation uh is sort of the the view from of the justice system is that the preponderance of evidence has to just be like not it's not even like overwhelming it's or beyond a reasonable doubt it has to be like i don't i don't even know i don't even know what has to happen in order for like a police officer to be convicted of of a crime because uh maybe the victim has to be another police officer or something like that is literally true well because part of the problem is if if a police officer has 
any reasonable fear and you know there's sort of a mind mind reading exercise there they can basically do whatever they want even if it is contraindicated by law or their particular training or the procedure of the police department so you really have to show that's that's why um these instances where police officers are at least sometimes prosecuted though usually juries let them off anyway but that's why these all have to be basically videos where there's someone running away um because you know prosecutors uh, First of all, they're they're loath to bring charges against police officers anyway. But it is it is actually a legitimate legal defense if the police officer is just like I was afraid, um, which is of course in, impossible to interrogate and includes uh, you know really everything up to uh, except you know an execution of a, a prisoner in custody. Yeah, it's very difficult to gainsay somebody saying that they were they feared for their lives. I mean, how can you possibly know that? But you can see how that having that available as an excuse uh, ends up licensing a lot of terrible behavior because it turns out that you could just say that and whether or not it's true and you know we lack the um, technology to uh, to figure out whether that was the case or not, you will not face consequences. I, look, I I, I totally um, just to return for a second to the point that you were making. I agree that the drug war and Supreme Court decisions about. Um, both the the latitude that police and prosecutors have with with criminals are are a large part. Like maybe it's too hard to imagine police interactions given those decisions and given that drug war. I mean, maybe if, for example, one of the best arguments about legalizing marijuana is that you would um, change so many street level interactions with people uh, from oh, you know, this could create a, a criminal record and. Uh, sort of police hostility to oh it's it's just you know a kid smoking pot hey don't do that on the street in the same way that you might see a, a kid drinking a beer bottle you'd be like hey throw that out you know if you're a cop you don't want to bust him and so I I I think that that's a, a a very valid point I mean I think that one of the things about Alexander's book that that she demonstrates is that it doesn't have to be these um intentional actions by by any group of people to have to have created this system right there are a series of actions that were taken uh, particularly as the crack epidemic was was hitting various inner cities that were either opportunistic or were naive about the impacts of of uh what these sort of um fewer and fewer restraints on on police and prosecutorial power and also um sort of less variability in terms of what judges could do uh, that that created this sort of undercast. Um, I think the question in rolling this back and sessions aside is how you can go at these um, many of these changes which have become enshrined in law over 30 years, um, especially given large-scale public opposition to to rolling them back because of because of basically of fear again, fear fear of crime. I actually don't know. To what extent there is, you know, large-scale public opposition? I think that, to me, one of the problems uh, that we have with the, in, in this debate, and I, this is like my my drum that I'm constantly banging, is that we don't actually talk about like what trade-offs we made. Uh, we don't talk about the um, what got us to the place where we are, and we don't talk about the fact that this was a to a large extent, I mean, yes, there are obviously some, I'm sure there were some effects of this that were unforeseen, but we got here because this was a conscious set of public policies that people enacted. And I think in order for 
that to change in order for, for us to have a, a, a political change uh, over this issue is we, first of all, I think we have to have a conversation that acknowledges that, that a lot of this was deliberate. Like that, that we have to look at the, look this in the face and, you know, just admit that as a society, we fucked up and that's not just, you know, that, that like, I mean, it sounds a little bit like, uh, you know, there's like, I don't know what, what to call it, like truth and reconciliation, reconciliation sure. or something like that. But that has to be part of it, number one. And um, number two, we have to talk about, OK, what are we actually willing to trade? Like, what are we? Uh, what arguments are we putting forth about how the police can behave? Because right now it's a, you know, a policeman stands up and says, well, you know, we're out there like defending your like your freedom every single day. And, you know, if you question us like how that's so terrible and unpatriotic and you should support the troops. And the counter argument to that is like, well, no, that's not what's actually happening. Right. You're not out there always solving murders. You're out there like ticketing people for uh you know, minor violations. And in fact, as we've seen from the Justice Department report uh, about Ferguson and other places, you're actually like acting as tax farmers uh, on like a community that has no possibility of defending itself. So that is the kind of stuff that has to come out into the open and be part of an actual conversation. Somebody has to be willing to say that. Um, And we're, I think we're getting more and more to the point where uh, certain Folks are like like certain politicians, maybe like the the more, the braver progressives are like willing to stand up and say that, but we're still not at a point where the society at large hears those arguments. And I think we need to get there. Like somebody, pe- people need to make those arguments, and they need to make them on the news. They need to make them, you know, hey, Chris Hayes has a uh, you know has a uh, news program, and he talks about this, so that's great. But more people need need to like that. That message needs to get out. Uh, so I, I guess I feel a couple things about this. One, the state of Alabama just passed a state law uh, which forbade any municipalities from removing their Confederate uh, war monuments. Obviously, a response to uh, in New Orleans, the uh, long overdue removal of, of some of those monuments. And for those who haven't, you should read Mayor Landry's speech about that, which I think is very powerful. Americans are really bad at admitting any racial fault and i'd say that's pretty obvious if we can't get over the fact that like the confederacy a traitorous uh group of people whose mission was to uh enslave and abuse their fellow man and who fought a war uh to continue doing so uh we can't even uh you know agree that we shouldn't honor those people as heroes um i guess i'd say point two here yes i agree about the tax farmers absolutely you know, Hillary Clinton had the mothers of the movement uh, at the DNC. I mean, arguably, Hillary Clinton, um, partly to try and outflank Bernie, but had the most uh, progressive uh, and to also deal with her previous support and for the crime bill in the early 90s and her husband's support for it, um, you know, actually did have a very progressive campaign on this. I think this is politicized in a way that is very, very hard. And I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong. Like, I I strongly support the idea that you're just saying that, that we need to have politicians on the left um, push back. But I am but I'm also saying that I am not optimistic about this being a um, a wedge issue that we can win voters with, even though it is obviously morally correct, like. 
Americans are incredibly scared of crime. Uh, I think it's a stat in the Hayes book that Gallup asks every year, is crime going up or down? So during the most dramatic drop in crime in our nation's history, uh, you know, when it fell all the way back to the rates of the 1960s, this is in the late 90s and the early aughts, every year Americans said crime was going up, you know, and um, maybe we can try and have more of a, a, a bullpen about this. But, you know, if it bleeds, it leads on local news. And you have the Americans who are terrified, who uh, don't want to hear your anti-police talk, uh, especially white Americans. Right? I, I wonder if if uh, one of the few solitary uh consequences of the implosion of this kind of your standard news media is that maybe this effect will abate because i think that a lot of people get um you know people who get their like news from the nightly news like yeah that's that's the kind of stuff where like if something terrible happens like yeah it's going to be on the news and especially if it's a smaller community uh, and it's going to sound like, oh, crime is rampant and everything is going to hell when in fact, like, yes, crimes happen. Uh, nobody disputes this, but they happen at a much lower rate than they used to happen. Um, and maybe uh, when when people are no longer kind of reading, um, you know, watching whatever the six o'clock news every night uh, where that's prominently displayed, maybe that they'll they'll, uh, they'll change their perception of that. I don't know. Well, I'll tell you where, where it could start. So, you know, not that many people are in federal prisons, right? It's something like 10% of Americans incarcerated are in federal prisons and yeah. the rest are in state and local prisons. So here's the thing, you know, in the same way that um, maybe, again, on healthcare policy, states can lead. Um, if you really have a very progressive state and you want to roll back the clock on incarceration and on the treatment of your um, minority citizens as subalterns or this undercast, um, to use Alexander's term, uh, what if we were to massively reduce sentencing? Um, and and I think the the lack of now maybe this is a something where progressives could do better because there there are a few state governments that are completely controlled by progressives, and I haven't seen a call to say uh, reduce sentences for murder down to fifteen years or to reduce sentences for aggravated assault or attempted murder or. You know, I mean, p part of the discrepancy between our incarceration and the Northern European uh, incarceration rates, which are, you know, an order of magnitude lower, is not just the number of people who are arrested or the crimes committed, it, it, it's sentence length, right? And and also, uh, as there's a Vera Institute report on this, um, the treatment of the prisoners in prison. Vermont should maybe do this, like sort of put its mouth where, where money where its mouth is to some extent. Like, if you think that solitary confinement is inhumane, which it is, and you think of our rates of incarceration are inhumane, which they are, and the treatment of our prisoners is abhorrent, um, and that punitive uh, measures like the ones we have um, only serve to increase recidivism and, and are bad for people, then we control seven or eight state governments through and through, right? And I, I think there's a real place for progressives to start. Yeah, it's easy to point the finger at Alabama and laugh at them. But, uh, you know, as New Yorkers, I think that we should really be ashamed of the state of our own system here. Because if you look at, I mean, like Rikers Island is just a place that should be closed. Like it should not exist. It is being closed. Up. It is being closed, yes, in 10 years. But it shouldn't have existed for a long time now. I mean, it's just like everything you read about it is like, absolutely horrifying and we're taking people for the most minor violations putting them in this environment where they are uh you know abused or by the guards by other inmates just creating this really 
awful torture chamber basically that just sits off the coast of uh, of manhattan and it's uh you know it's just something that should not should not be happening uh, i think that you know everybody probably is familiar with the story but there's this uh you know extremely tragic piece in the new yorker and the follow-up to it about uh a guy named khalif browder who spent three years at rikers without being charged with a crime Right. Uh, just imagine what that is like. Imagine what that means for somebody to have three years of their life taken away uh, without even, um, you know, being told that you are uh, serving time for something that you actually did. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the final uh, sort of note to the story is that he ended up committing suicide, you know, as as a consequence of, kind of the brutality that he experienced uh, at Rikers. And this is a story that was written about three or four years ago by a New Yorker reporter named Jennifer Gonerman. So you can look it up uh, that way. Like, fine, you know, Alabama is like sucks, but we can also do a lot better as, you know, as progressive states. We can, and New York in particular had this, you know, was at the forefront of uh, increased sentence length uh, during the 70s with the Rockefeller drug laws. Uh, so maybe uh, we should start by kind of like atoning for that and uh, reversing a lot of the things that, you know, New York introduced to the nation. Yeah. I mean, if you talk to people like Mark Kleiman, um, he actually recommends basically, um, you know, actually stricter rules on alcohol, although he, he supports most drug decriminalization. But to stop recidivism, um, you know, he basically recommends that we scrap our entire current existing prison and probation system and have things like, oh, well, you know, if you fail a breathalyzer, uh, it, you get arrested for a day. We put you in jail for 12 hours and then you're out again. These sort of like actually measurable, quick punishments that, um, you know, might deter certain behaviors as opposed to, well, we don't do anything and you meet with your parole officer and then you miss like 12 different checks and then we throw you in prison for four years which is the current status, which is sort of arbitrary and disconnected. Um, the, the other thing I'll note is that, um, to go back to, to, to Jerry's point, absolutely, prison is, is, prison is so horrifying that when I've asked every single middle-class or upper-middle-class friend of mine what they would rather have, if they would rather uh, be branded on their face or spend a year in prison— uh, it's a real consideration. A lot of people pick the brand. Um, and when you extend that out to like five or 10 years in prison, a lot of people pick losing a limb. I mean, think about that, right? Like we have the Eighth Amendment because we said, well, no cruel and unusual punishment, right? And yet you have people who live in a society that offers, you know, presumably quite better living standards than uh, the 18th century colonies who literally are saying, well, actually, I would take the barbaric torturing of my of my flesh or maiming uh, over spending time in our prisons currently. And I think that that's that's an indication. Yet the same people who say that sort of blithely accept a system um, that, you know, right, puts close to one percent of its population in jail. There's actually speaking of Mark Kleiman, uh, he is a he's a blogger at a website called I mean, he's also a drug policy. Uh, he's a professor of uh, sociology, I think, or something like that. But he blogs at this at a website called samefacts.com. And he actually has a very interesting uh, transcript of his testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, from May 22nd. So quite recently about mandatory sentencing and, and drug control. Um, it's a uh, Quite, a, quite an interesting read, and he addresses a lot of the questions, I think, that should be addressed, you know, when we actually talk about these things. We talk about what kind of policies we have. 
like he asks a lot of the questions that we should be asking. So just wanted to throw that out since we're talking about his work. Um, but the other point that I wanted to come back to, which we've mentioned sort of obliquely several times, um, is that we talk about the criminal justice system as if there was a single system, but there is not a single system. Uh, there are, in fact, almost as many systems as there are municipalities. Um, they are themselves structured by the systems of the states, and there's also a federal system that sits on top of that. And the way that those systems all interact is really confusing and opaque, and people spend their entire lives just to, trying to understand how those pieces of machinery move relative to each other. Uh, but um, all that, what that should tell you, though, is that it is extremely hard to like say, oh, we're going to get this sweeping change, let's say, through Congress, right. and that's going to you know make everything better. Because you know even if it would make say the federal system better, it's not clear whether it necessarily would make the state laws better, for example, because states have an extremely wide latitude in what they can do with respect to criminal justice. So imagine being the accused in this system or being a public defender in this system, and imagine having to try and understand how all these different levels of the criminal justice like machinery are arrayed against you. It's really hard, right? It's, um, and the thing that testifies to the fact that it's really hard is that most people plead out. Uh, this is something we don't talk about because uh, again, we sort of tend to ignore the role of prosecutors in the system, but prosecutors are actually hugely important. Prosecutors kind of have, uh, have a ton of discretion about how they're going to charge people, what they're going to charge them with, uh, what kind of deals they can offer them. And the punchline is that something like 95 or 97% of people just plead out uh, because uh, you go to court and you see the machinery of the state arrayed against you and you just decide, okay, it's, maybe it's not worth my time to contest this, whatever it is, this misdemeanor charge or this minor felony or even this major felony or whatever. Um, maybe instead of uh, risking a trial and you know being convicted and getting 25 to life, I can get 10 years and that's a better deal. But that, that is the consequence of both the complexity of the system and the discretion which the prosecution has within it. Right. I mean, it, it's an incredible threat to someone. I mean, imagine staring at, you know, even seven to 10 years in the face and someone says, well, you've already been in prison for three months, like while we've been processing you, right? Three months is good. And you and right, three months may be good. And if you plea out to this felony, you know, maybe you'll get two years, maybe it'll get, uh, you know, after a year, you'll be eligible for parole. And someone might go, oh, that's great. You know, I don't want to take the risk, even if I didn't do this. Look, like, you know, what's the dilemma, right? It's like, well, I, I don't want to go to jail for seven to 10 more years. And, and they think, you know, my employment situation is already screwed because you've kept me in here. The problem is, right, now when that person is eventually released for, let's, let's postulate a crime that they did not commit, that they plead out to, uh, in most states, they can't vote. Um, in almost all states uh, that haven't banned the box, which is asking about someone's criminal record, um, it's virtually impossible for them to get employed at any sort of non-entry-level wage, right? 
Um, and many and many states and municipalities have additional employment restrictions on them. And now they're also subject to the parole system, which means that all of these activities that you and I take for granted can foot fault them into possibly returning to prison for significant amount of time without facing a jury trial just for having a parole violation. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's absolutely a terrible system. And that's without even the point that Jerry mentioned earlier, which is that some municipalities uh, are just acting as, as tax farmers or tax sheriffs um, with with their very poor population. So it's this is a good scheme for them. They basically, oh, plea down to this and then pay us and continue paying us uh, these exorbitant rates. There's all these horror stories in the news about people who maybe owe something like some, you know, relatively trivial if you're well-to-do, but not at all trivial if you're poor, amounts of money like $100 or $200 or something that so that's money that they owe to the state. And they can't come up with it because they don't have any money. And then the cops come and pick them up and process them. By the way, like if you think that processing a person is just like checking a box, it's not like that, right? Processing a person requires like a ton of investment, uh, both material and personal on the part of the state. So it's not like processing somebody is just consequence free. Uh, that's actually like money that you're spending every time you bring a person in for that. Uh, but anyway, you know, the, the state, the, the cops go out, pick them up, process them. Uh, now they have uh, this uh, original fine that they were supposed to have paid. And now attacked onto that is like another fine that they have to pay because they were late with the first one or they are charged uh, certain court fees you know, as in order to kind of recoup the um, the cost of actually going out there and finding them. And these fees just snowball. And people are like, you know, their original violation was for something like $100 or $200, and they end up paying thousands of dollars and still not being clear of their debts, which is just absolutely insane. And not only that, but they can turn into debtor's prisons because, oh, maybe their driver's license will be suspended as a result of you know, these unpaid fines. And then, oh, well, they're driving on a suspended license to get to work to feed their family. Well, and in some jurisdictions, that's criminal as opposed to just another fine. And it accelerates. Um, Walter Scott in South Carolina, who is the man who was shot in the back uh, by a police officer, uh, an African-American man, um, you know, the stop was sort of bullshit anyway. But but one of the reasons that it's hypothesized that he, he ran was exactly that I think he had sort of um, unpaid unpaid fines roughly and, and didn't want to engage with the criminal justice system in this way uh, and for that he was murdered and so right I mean it, it's 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 a um, and these are things that that basically middle class folks white folks never have to deal with both because they don't enter into it in the first place and also because if you have you know a couple thousand dollars in your bank account 200 bucks you're like well why don't they just pay that fine um, it, 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 it doesn't you know it, it, it wouldn't have the same impact I'll just tell a brief personal story um, about my like one interaction with um, law enforcement that made me uh, somewhat nervous. Um, I was uh, this was probably about 10 years ago. I was driving uh, with my friends to a quiz bowl tournament uh, in um, Maryland, and we stopped in New Jersey to pick up a friend of mine who lived in New Jersey and to take him with us. It was about it was quite late at night, probably close to midnight. And, uh, you know, we drove down, we, we picked up my friend, we, we drove down the street to go get on the highway and we got on the ramp. And as I got on the ramp, uh, a New Jersey patrol officer pulled me over. Um, already, like I was, you know, like pretty nervous, uh, but, um, you know, whatever, roll down my window, officer comes over, says license registration, I give him my license registration. He walks away, he's gone for maybe five minutes, 
He comes back and he says, um, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, I have no idea. And he says, uh, your registration is expired. Oh, well, shit. Um, and true enough, like my car, which was registered in Rhode Island at the time, uh, had an expired registration. I just simply forgot to renew it. You think, okay, well, expired registration is not like a criminal offense, right? It's like there's nothing that should be just like a ticket, right? And the next thing he says to me just kind of like caused me to like really panic inside. And he says, well, I could just have you, uh, I could have the car impounded right now. And I was like, holy shit, like he's going to impound the car. And we're like in, you know, I don't know, in the middle of New Jersey. Like fortunately, we were close to where my friend lived. But like I need to get back to Rhode Island at some point. Like I have to go back to school, go back to work. Like what, what's what's going on here? Like it's just it just felt like a completely insane like and like overreaction to the degree of the violation that we had. And he started quizzing us about what we were doing and you know, fortunately for us, we were like two white guys and an Asian guy. And so yeah. we weren't black. And so in the end, he was just maybe he just decided it was more trouble to hassle us than it was worth. So he wrote me a ticket for fifty five dollars and sent us on our way. But like, it's just like it, I think that it, it's this little episode which really encapsulates like what the police can do to you for any kind of rule that you might break. And it was just fortunate, you know, for me that I happened to be who I am and we happened to be who we were. Whereas, like, you know, if, if you can imagine what the consequences might have been for a black driver or a car full of black kids. I guess my, my point here is that it's really just kind of like it's horrifying, like if you've ever been exposed to that. And I think a lot of people have not been exposed to how arbitrary police authority can really be. And so they think, oh, you know, yeah, the police are there to uh, whatever, keep the peace and, you know, solve crimes and whatever. And then you're actually confronted with it for, you know, even the most minor things. And it's like, oh, my God, like these people could just ruin your life at any minute. Well, I mean, what's what's really crazy is, you know, if they'd impounded your car, uh, they could have kept it and not returned it. That's right. I mean, they could have yeah. said, oh, your car is like the product of drug crimes or something. And they don't have to prove uh, that. I mean, that, that's civil asset even, forfeiture. We didn't even talk about this, but that's a, a whole other thing that is, you know, we call it the criminal justice system, but then that word is civil asset forfeiture. And the reason why it's civil asset forfeiture is because the police do not have to show that it was obtained illegally. Basically, you are the one who has to prove the innocence of any assets that are taken from you because the police suspect that they might be a consequence of, uh, of, of drug crimes. So, so what are some things, right, that could actually address this? And right, Let's let's write off the Alabamas for now, uh, or rather not write them off, but just just accept that there there's a longer term movement that will have to succeed in order to get the Alabamas through. I think that in progressive states, uh, a couple things it completely eliminate civil asset forfeiture, um, eliminate the funding of police departments, uh, if possible, fund police departments as much as possible um, through. Uh, non-revenue activities like basically any place this was a big part of the Ferguson report but it's true in a lot of establishments even places that wouldn't consider themselves tax farmers I mean if 30 40 percent of your revenue is coming from tickets that you write you have a strong interest in not preserving community order but in basically uh, shopping expeditions on your citizenry um, and then I think the sentencing like Honestly, you know, everyone said it. You could reduce all, release all the nonviolent criminals. It it would 
you know, a, a fifth of are incarcerated. Well, I think that, that was drug criminals. Specifically. Right. Sorry. Nonviolent drug criminals. A, a fifth of our criminals would go. I think the real thing is just sentence reduction. Honestly, I mean, it's, it's just hard for me to see even the, the most heinous crimes, what you really get out of se- sticking someone in prison for 30 or 40 years versus 20 years um, or for life. And, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate that there's a desire to see justice done but a person who is in prison for 40 years uh, versus 20 years, you know, their, their life is just as completely ruined by 20 years. And, and I also think if you there's any attempt to have rehabilitation in prison, uh, it's very difficult to do in, in situations where you have such overcrowding. Um, oh, and as a last thing I'll throw on there, uh, solitary confinement should be uh, forbidden because it's torture. I, I agree with all of the, all of those points. Um, the one thing I would add, I think, is that which is actually maybe, in some ways, more achievable than um, police than direct police reform is prosecutorial reform. Mm. Again, prosecutors have a huge amount of latitude in how they interact with uh, defendants, and there's a um, there's a guy at Fordham Law uh, by the name of Jim Pfaff who's cited by um, who's cited by Chris Hayes in his book. Um, who's done a lot of work uh, that suggests that a lot of the increases in incarceration are actually due to people's direct interactions with prosecutors, meaning that like prosecutors are the drivers of actually siphoning people into this uh, into this system because it takes kind of both sides, right? The police have to go out there and actually find like find a human being and bring them in but then the prosecutors also have to make the decision of well are we going to charge them with whatever so one thing for example is like judicial elections uh hugely incentivize people to you know to be quote-unquote tough on crime when that really doesn't actually produce any material reductions in crimes but it says oh i brought in like x many like i convicted x many people therefore i must be tougher than somebody who convicted one half as many people or something. Whereas like all the known research suggests that those numbers just don't have any relationship to actual crimes that are being committed. So I think reforming the prosecutorial system and ending judicial elections are two things that would, I think, really go a long way towards um, disincentivizing the legal system to like process process these folks. Agreed. And if and if we can't end the judicial elections, run progressives in them. Um, Larry Krasner, who just won in Philadelphia, uh, well, he won the Democratic primary for DA in Philadelphia, which is he's going to win the general. Um, you know, he is a civil rights attorney who's sued the police for his career, um, and he'll be the next DA. You know, you know, we'll see how this works out. But right, if we can't end uh, judicial and prosecutorial elections, um, making sure that uh, candidates run who are progressive, especially in in urban areas, you know, the fact that you have, um, you know, large cities with with Democratic supermajorities that have tough on crime prosecutors getting elected um, is sort of a, a sign of, of races that progressive activists should be contesting more seriously. Um, because, right, as, as Jerry just notes, you have a, you have a huge amount of influence um, in, in terms of what you charge and how you charge and, and, and interact with. And also speaking of, you know, speaking of judges, I would really love to see more judges being appointed who've had that background as public defenders. I don't know how many people know about the backgrounds of, for example, like the Supreme Court, but there's nobody on the court who has worked in a public defense role, right? Like, it's just very rare for somebody who has that background to wind up on the bench. 
Um, we're much more interested in putting prosecutors on the bench. Uh, and I, I think that's really regrettable. Like, I think, you know, if you're if you want to say, OK, like I want ideological diversity on the bench, put somebody with a public defense background on there, uh, because I think those people are going to be much more uh, open and under to a lot of the arguments that are being made uh, with regard to police reform and with regard to police conduct. That's a slightly idiosyncratic, I guess. No, but I think I, that's actually like it would it would be a lot of help. I, I think it's an incredible idea, and unfortunately, you know, actually, there's a woman, Jane Kelly, who was on the Eighth Circuit, and um, she was one of the people on the shortlist for the Merrick Garland nomination, along with uh, Sri Srinivasan and and um, guy in the Ninth, Paul Watford, and of course Garland. And she actually got eliminated. And the Obama people afterwards said one of the reasons she was eliminated was because she had been a public defender. And they thought that'd be a harder walk through the Senate. You know, that's horrifying because that is an important perspective. And the fact of the matter is Garland obviously would have been a lot better than Gorsuch. But um, one of the things that Garland was expected to be quite bad on was criminal justice issues. Um, you know, his his track record actually shows a striking deference to um you know, prosecutors and police, even in cases where, where it was fairly clear that they were perjuring themselves. Um, and, oh, while we're adding on to the wish list, um, the fact that basically prosecutors and police can perjure themselves without any consequence um, is uh, has to be addressed with, right, with that's a some, prime, some form of sanction. That's a prime area for reform, because among the things you could, you should be able to get people behind is the idea that the prosecution should not and the police should not be able to lie. Like they should not be able to lie on the stand. That's that's like a bedrock principle of equitable justice. And if we don't have that, then you cannot be assured that you're going to receive a fair trial. And I'm glad that uh, you brought up uh, Krasner because I think that that is a situation where uh, that they can serve as an indicator that this is not a hopeless fight, right? That, that somebody who's been quite critical of the police, who's sued the police, uh, can run for this ex- incredibly important office. Like Philadelphia DA is like actually really, really important. It's a relatively high profile office, even like on a national scale. And uh, that somebody could run for this and could win with a fairly solid support for their position. I think that that really indicates that progress can be made. And I think that it's really regrettable to me when like, you know, liberals and progressives don't make that art, don't make these arguments because but because they're saying, oh, well, we're going to be caricatured as soft on crime or, you know, we can't like uh, we, we can't make it look like we're um, sympathetic to whatever, to criminals. Like that's nonsense. This is not about being tough on crime or soft on soft on crime. This is about having a system that treats people decently and equitably, even if they happen to be criminals. Like yeah. that, that just means that's that's a bedrock, again, bedrock principle of basic human rights. Like you do not, you yes, you if you commit a crime, you lose your freedom, but you do not uh, necessarily have to lose your freedom for your entire life over, you know, like three strikes laws are quite terrible and they're still in effect in California, I believe, and many other places. Uh, that's something that's ripe for reform. Um, we shouldn't have things like that. And it's about the idea that, first of all, the punishment has to be proportional to the crime. But uh, secondarily, it's about the idea that the state should not be able to arbitrarily do whatever it wants to you. Like that's something that everybody should understand. Uh, you would think that that's something that you could get at least some number of conservatives behind uh, because, and, and in fact, there are a number of people who I guess 
maybe Radley Balco is a good per- person to mention. Uh, he's not a conservative. He's more like a libertarian, I guess. But he's definitely somebody who's been working this beat uh, at the Washington Post for many, many years, talking about police militarization and arbitrary use of force and all this kind of stuff. So there's an audience for this stuff out there. Uh, yeah, but you, have to re- you have to stand up and talk to that audience and reach it. The Koch brothers, again, like actually have funded legitimately a lot of the uh, reform projects here. And yeah, talk I, I, about weird allies. I mean, you know, I think this is the one place, you know, normally I think libertarian bedfellows are sort of false uh, friends. But I, I do think that they're sincere in criminal justice because the abrogation of people's constitutional rights is just so profound. And, you know, the the right to all of the things that we sacrificed in the drug war you know the in terms of violations of people's basic constitutional rights and rights to security in their own home um and again in a climate of fear and rising crime but the truth of the matter is you know you were saying it's not soft on crime it's not tough on crime that's bullshit we also don't even know what causes crime like there are no satisfactory explanations for the large rise in violence that occurred in the late 1960s and 70s through the 80s and there are no satisfactory explanations for the decline in crime in you know the 90s and the aughts there's a funny quote in the chris hayes book that if you add up all of the explanations, none of them explain more than like 10% and you get something like two and a half or three times the total increases and declines. And like, it's, you know, whenever someone is running as tough on crime or saying someone's soft on crime, it is bullshit. Because basically, like, none of these things are shown to have more than, most of them are shown to have none. And, and most of them have very only marginal impacts on the actual crime rate. And that includes the, you know, incarceration of, of, of lots of people. Hayes uses a, a phrase that I uh, really uh, that that I enjoy. Uh, that's taken from Richard Feynman. He, you know, he calls it a cargo cult, um, and you know the the idea there being that you don't know what causes the effect that you're trying to reproduce or eliminate. All you know is that like you make these you you make certain um, gestures and something happens, and so you just assume that you you're going to keep making these gestures in order to propitiate the you know the gods or whatever in this case impersonal gods that cause or do not cause crime. So yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think that we just kind of assume that, you know, these quote, quote unquote, tough on crime measures, incarceration, all this stuff, that it drives these increases and decreases, but it doesn't seem that it actually does. I mean, at the margins, it makes some, some difference, but in reality, it's like, it's not, it doesn't account for this huge wave that we saw from, you know, the sixties and then the decline again into the nineties. And, you know, people who tell you that they know exactly what causes crime probably are, you know, are doing so in order to sell you a bill of goods. Yeah. And I mean, I think just to to note, there's also a peace dividend that's available here. The states spend about $50 billion. Sorry? States spend $70 billion on prisons every year. And, you know, a lot of this spending has come uh, rapidly increasing spending at a time um, when spending for education, especially for uh, state funding for college education, has dropped dramatically. And, you know, if our incarceration rate were the rate of, uh, you know, various different northern European countries, or even if it were only five times higher as opposed to 10 times higher, um, you know, states would be able to increase their spending on education, which is their their most significant sort of spending that they do, by over 10%. And if you ask voters, you know, 
do you want to spend to lock up largely nonviolent people for longer than any other country in the world does? Or would you like to spend more on your kids' schools? I mean, hopefully that's an argument we can win. Yeah. And and I do agree also that, you know, we will have to have an argument about uh, sentence length. I think that's uh, obviously very important. We're going to have to say that even the people who should be in prison shouldn't be in prison for that long. Uh, I think one of the most important factors in support of this is that recidivism is something or committing crimes generally is something that tends to uh, drop off exponentially as people age. So crime tends to be a young person's game. Um, Once you're kind of in your 40s, you're typically not prime material for uh, for criminal uh, for criminal acts. And so I think, you know, if we're if we're approaching this from the standpoint of like how many people are going to commit crimes and what can we do to prevent them from committing them? Uh, I think we should say that, OK, you know, at a certain point when you're at your at a certain age, you're just not that big of a risk. And it's OK if you you know, if you stole something 10 years ago and you've been locked up and you're now 40, like probably you should let you go instead of, uh, you know, adhering to this rigid structure where we, you know, keep people in prison for decades because they're they've offended like three or four times. And and I think this note on the carceral state is something that should caution progressives, because I think that, you know, progressives have become much more aware. And I think in a, in a very good way of the sort of sexual assault crisis that has been, uh, you know, uh, moving over broadly society and, and, and also college campuses. But I think that, you know, we have to be wary of carceral solutions. Um, you know, everyone was so upset uh, at, you know, the Brock Turner case, right? And this is mentioned quite a bit in the Hayes book, um, you know, where this is a man who raped someone at Stanford and was only given a six-month sentence. But I think the, the, the vision for a more reparative, restorative justice shouldn't be that the Brock Turners of the world get locked up for 25 years to life. Uh, it should be that every young man who commits a horrible act like that, who's currently getting locked up for 25 years to life, has some more humane rehabilitative path uh, than the current one. And, you know, I, I think that if you talk to people, talk to activists in, in various movements, um, you know, there are a lot of crimes that are uh, targeting, um, you know, for example, trans people of color and people who are, are unprotected by our current society. But I don't think any of them would say, oh, yeah, but what we really need is a huge carceral response. Like, I think that um, one of the things that, that progressives have to be careful to do is to um, join these movements to protect um, vulnerable populations who are outside of this police aegis. Um, but, but right, but not, uh, by responding by saying, okay, let's build more prisons. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I think that the one, the one place where I sort of diverge from what, what Hayes is saying about this, I think is, uh, you know, he kind of also talks about in the same passage, not passage, but in the same chapter where he talks about the Brock Turner, uh, case, he also talks about white collar, uh, criminals. And this is actually something, this is one area where I would actually kind of like to see, enforcement and uh, prison sentences increase um, just because I think that we tend to under prosecute white collar crime and it actually like when a person steals a physical item they steal from one individual but white collar crime actually can affect 
millions and millions of people, uh, as we saw, you know, during uh, the financial crisis. So that's actually some uh, one area where I would kind of say I don't I don't think that you know white collar criminals should be doing twenty five to life, but I do think that they should be there should be a lot more uh, emphasis on prosecuting people who you know commit like financial fraud and stuff like that because that is actually something that you know, hurts millions of people. So you and Matt Taibbi, I'm going to take the Matt Levine side of that debate and say that, that I think that there are better methods than sending people to prison. I mean, one of the things really is we have to understand what rehabilitative justice really means. And I, I would be happy if the CEO of Wells Fargo had been sentenced to uh, not only never working in the financial industry again, but for the next 10 years, uh, if he wanted work, maybe he would have to work as a home health aide uh, for seniors. But I think sending him, oh, we should prosecute him and send him 10 years in prison. I, I don't know, like maybe because that's more fair given who goes to prison currently, but it, it still seems but like a should, moral wrong. But I think we should still prosecute him, right? Like even achieving these other, uh, you know, reparative um, measures still involves like having these people actually being prosecuted. And right now, I mean, this is what I'm, this is what I mean. One of the things I mean when I talk about prosecutorial discretion, um, a lot of times uh, agencies like the SEC just, you know, they decide it's not worth their time, right? Like they, like, oh, this sure. case would be like really difficult. We'd have to like work real hard at it. And it's not like they're lazy, but they just have to prioritize kind of what they think they can get, a, not get away with, but what they think they can win. And they decide, okay, we're not going to go after this because it's uh, it's too, either too complicated or too laborious or whatever. Um, so. Yeah, that's just that's my take. Like, I think that prosecutors should be much more uh, conscious of white collar crime and take that much more seriously uh, and not leave that necessarily to, for example, like agencies like the SEC, which may not even have the, the resources to prosecute it. But anyway, that's a bit of a bit of a side debate. Uh, it's just it was like the one area where I kind of felt like maybe um, Hayes was letting some people off a little bit too leniently. So I, so I guess that's the kind of the wrap up of, of our, you know, discussion on this topic. Um, what, one of the things that we really wanted to do uh, for, for this, uh, for this theme, because, because it is such a huge and all encompassing topic that obviously, you know, we can't possibly do justice to in the span of a single episode, or, you know, even probably many episodes was to try and get some folks in who had, you know, had a lot of background in, you know, both. Uh, public defense and in uh, studying criminal justice from different angles. Um, we were not able to coordinate all of the people that we wanted to have on. So that's why we're, we're doing this episode ourselves. But hopefully in the future, uh, we might be able to get somebody who is a who is a public defender and another person who um, I actually don't know the background. Um, and another person who's worked as a public defender and is now working as a uh, clinical professor and and uh, of law and, and helping with the with uh, with defense. Um, so yeah, so we think those perspectives, as Jerry was noting uh, earlier, are incredibly important. Um, in part because this sort of prosecutorial mindset is, I think, the one we're all familiar with, not just from you know media, but but it it's it's a side I think um, that is just very rarely heard. Yeah. So here in this in this. This episode, we're, we're sort of laying out kind of a roadmap of various grievances and 
possible solutions. And uh, in the future, I don't know if it'll, it'll happen in the next episode or the one after, but in the future, we hope to get at least one or maybe both of these folks together and uh, try to get their insight into kind of what it's like to be on the other side of that, uh, you know, on the other side of the law, so to speak. Well, thank you very much. And uh, listeners, we, we remind you once again, please uh, rate and review us on whatever site you are listening to the pod on. Uh, we'll help a larger audience find the find the pod. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time.